All right, we ended up talking about Africa. Let's go back to Africa to talk about some, well, just some of the crazy things that have come out of this shooting of Cecil the Lion in Zimbabwe by this horse's ass dentist and his uh, collaborators in Zimbabwe. Let's take a look at some idiocy closer to home. Apparently there is a sharp increase in the international trade in bobcat pelts. This led Assemblyman Richard Bloom, Democrat of Santa Monica, to propose AB 1213, which began as an outright ban on bobcat trapping. According to the bill's analysts, trapping tripled between 2009 and 2012 with an estimated 1,300 bobcats killed in the 2011-12 hunting season compared with 457 in the 2009-2010 season. During that time, the price of a pelt jumped to $700 from $78. Is this disgusting? This has prompted the California Fish and Game Commission to consider a statewide ban on bobcat trapping. Oh, by the way, hunting will not be affected. Opponents of the bill charge the Fish and Game Commission is stepping well beyond its duty to implement the spirit of the law. They quote Assemblyman Adam Gray, Democrat from Merced, is saying, It's simple. There was a bill before the legislature to ban the bobcat trapping. That didn't pass. You don't need much more clarity than that to know what the legislature was okay with. Assemblyman Gray, shut up. This piece by Alexei Kosa from SACB.com, this is just amazing to me, notes that trappers and farmers express frustration that social and political considerations are winning out over science because they point out the bobcat population survey is yet to be undertaken. In quotes, California Trappers Association spokesman Hector Barajas is saying, no money's been requested, no research has been done. How can you have a commission that can go out there and do whatever it wants to? <laughs> they quote Noel Creamers, director of natural resources and commodities at the California Farm Bureau Federation, saying, said ranchers want to make sure they have the ability to protect their animals, even though depredation trapping would still be allowed under a statewide ban, but it could result in a shortage of trappers with the skill to kill bobcats. Whew, boy, I hope you don't lose any sleep over that tonight, dear listener. That really wasn't fallout to Cecil, but this is. Peace in the Bee, op-ed by Dan Giotanini, president of the Sacramento chapter of the Safari Club International. His viewpoint is that responsible hunting helps save lions. Yes, doggone it, it's all those irresponsible hunters that are pro- the problem. And although I shouldn't give this guy a public forum, I can't resist quoting from this knucklehead piece, noting that while responsible hunters deplore the illegal killings of big game, it's unfortunate that animal rights extremists, they're always extremists, aren't they, are exploiting the high-profile shooting of a lion to advance political and fundraising agendas by spreading misinformation and maligning local hunters. The author of Cecil the Lion's Awful Death Should End Trophy Hunting, Viewpoints August 4th, ignored the vital role that Safari Club International members and other hunters play globally in protecting wildlife parks and conservancies. Yes, I guess what really irks these guys is that local poachers in Africa are killing the animals and they don't get any trophies. He does correctly, I think, note that Vernon Booth, a Zimbabwean ecologist with 30 years of wildlife management, told the New York Times that lions were not protected because of the high value attached to them as trophies. Without the trophy hunt money, locals would increasingly poison lions. Yeah, maybe. So we're going to save the lions by keeping them as valuable trophies. Are you following this logic? This guy says that current grandstanding by animal rights groups distracts attention from their failure to do meaningful conservation work. Where is their investment in protecting wildlife parks and conservancies in Africa? Where is their willingness to work with our members as we fight poachers and and then sometimes shoot lions? All right, I got to stop. 
we ended the last segment more or less by talking about um, some of the idiocies of communism, which there seems to be no shortage in the world. Case in point, the North Korean government has now decided as of August 15th to turn its clocks back by a half hour to establish its own time zone. The Economist notes, it seems appropriate for a country that venerates its past. The Hermit Kingdom already has its own calendar, with years counted from 1912, the birth year of its founder and eternal president, Kim Il-sung. And they note that Korea's time traveling is the latest example of a long tradition of expressing political power by adjusting clocks and calendars. They note that not all such changes stand the test of time. Think of France's failed attempt to introduce the 10-hour clock. Dumb idea. And an entirely new calendar after the revolution of 1789. Or how about the Soviet Union's experiment with five- and six-day weeks during the 1930s? Apparently also in Turkmenistan, where Sapar Murat Niyazov changed the national calendar and named one of the months after his mother... Although he had to be dead a couple of years for them to finally step in and set things right again. The Economist notes that in practice, time zones and calendars are more than just arbitrary ways to rule lines on time. They do not merely specify how to refer to a particular instant or period. They also dictate and coordinate activities across entire societies, in particular by defining which days are working days and national holidays. These have to be consistent within countries and in some cases between them. Just ask Saudi Arabia, which in 2013 moved its weekend from Thursday slash Friday to Friday slash Saturday to bring it into line with other Arab states. They note the need for such a coordination means there's no escape from centralized control of clocks and calendars, which explains why the tendency to politicize them seems timeless. And speaking of Saudi Arabia, there's still a reverberating controversy over, uh, well, the whole mixture of Saudi Arabian money, U.S. intervention in Afghanistan, the role of Pakistan's intelligence services, and how bin Laden fits into this, and the Taliban, and this whole polluted mess of uh, the Arab world, a lot of whose troubles we have contributed to significantly, shall we say. We talked about that on last week's program. As part of follow-up for that, we note that, uh, well, there hasn't been much said in the last couple months about the brouhaha over Seymour Hersh noting in the London Review of Books last June, based on, in, on interviews with retired U.S. intelligence officials, that claims Pakistani authorities hid bin Laden at Saudi Arabia's request. When America found out, Pakistan agreed to allow a U.S. raid on conditions that the White House say bin Laden was killed on the Afghan-Pakistani border. But then, Hirsch claimed, President Obama double-crossed the Pakistanis. Pakistan failed to realize there was no way an American president up for re-election would keep his lips sealed after such a triumph. And the Pakistani source reportedly said our leaders couldn't complain about the betrayal because they'd look like stooges. Now, Seymour Hersh doesn't get everything right. His book on JFK was a bit of a travesty, but he did break the My Lai story, which is an epic incident of reporting from the Vietnam era, and he did report on the atrocities at Abu Ghraib. But he's gotten himself into the crosshairs of some powerful people of late, with, well, such things as a recent article in which he claimed that operatives of the Catholic organization Opus Dei were controlling the U.S. military. By the way, did you know that seven of the Supreme Court justices are Catholic? Apparently we have two Jews and seven Catholics. But, uh, I don't know, Seymour Hersh is so off base on that idea. He's also alleged recently that Turkey and an Islamic terrorist group conspired 
to stage the deadly chemical weapons attack in Syria to lure the U.S. into further attacks on Syrian President Bashir al-Assad. We don't find that implausible at all, although Max Fisher writing in Vox.com claimed that both these stories have been thoroughly debunked. By the way, this may be a good time to do a review, which was published uh, August 24th, two years ago, about, um, well, what's going on over in the Middle East, a short guide, which goes as follows. Iran is backing Assad. Gulf states are against Assad. Assad is against the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood and Obama are against General Sisi. The Gulf states are pro-Sisi, which means they are against the Muslim Brotherhood. Iran is pro-Hamas. But Hamas is backing the Muslim Brotherhood. Obama is backing the Muslim Brotherhood, yet Hamas is against the U.S. Gulf states are pro-U.S., but Turkey is with the Gulf states against Assad. Yet, Turkey is pro-Muslim Brotherhood against General Sisi, and General Sisi is being backed by the Gulf states. Welcome to the Middle East. And if you're trying to sort out what goes on in Saudi Arabia, and good luck to you, if you're going to take that one on, you might refer to the New Yorker's Talk of the Town, oddly enough, from the May 25th issue of this year, which notes that in January of this year, Salman bin Abdulaziz ascended to the throne of Saudi Arabia and installed his son, Mohammed bin Salman, as Minister of Defense. And in late March, the Saudis launched a bombing campaign against neighboring Yemen to contain a rebel force known as the Houthis, whom the Saudis see as allies of Iran. And by the way, King Salman, who's 79, early this year named a nephew, Mohammed bin Nayef, age 55, and runs the Interior Ministry as his crown prince and successor, with bin Salman as second in line. This plan empowers Salman's branch of the House of Saud, who are known as the Sudaris, after Salman's mother. The New Yorker notes that Obama's been willing to criticize Saudi Arabia publicly in ways that previous presidents have not, In April, he told Tom Friedman of the Times that Saudi Arabia and its neighbors should recognize that the biggest threats that they may face may not be coming from Iran invading. It's going to be from dissatisfaction inside their own countries. And by the way, in its military adventurism, we would note that our Saudi allies are getting new access to top-flight U.S. weaponry. Because after all, doesn't a lot of this come back down to selling arms to people that want to go blow things up? There is a great deal of money to be made in the war trade. Because it should be noted that um, when there's a passing of the crown to the next generation, this will mark the first time since, well, the beginning of the Saudi kingdom that the first generation sons of King Ibn Saud will see the power pass to the next generation. This will end a 60-year tradition of rule passing between brothers or half-brothers. Keep in mind, of course, that the U.S. is committed to the expansion of democracy throughout the Middle East, supposedly. Meanwhile, back in the U.S., it should be noted that attorneys for Saudi Arabia asked a Manhattan judge in April to reject lawsuits from the families of 9-11 victims that accused the kingdom of helping al-Qaeda launch the terrorist attacks. In legal papers, the Arab nation's lawyers told U.S. District Judge George Daniels that there was no evidence linking Saudi Arabia to 9-11, except for the 15 of the 19 guys involved, I guess, and asked him to ignore recent comments made to plaintiff's lawyers by imprisoned al-Qaeda member Zacharias Musawi. The attorneys say that Musawi's claim that Saudi Arabia was in contact with Osama bin Laden in the lead-up to the attacks was immaterial hearsay from a mentally ill terrorist. The papers were filed one day after former Florida Senator Bob Graham accused the FBI of covering up its own investigation 
into a Saudi family in Sarasota, Florida, who were connected to the hijackers and who fled the U.S. shortly before the attacks. We talked about this very incident with Greg Pallast on this program several years ago, and I, I hope, dear listener, you'll acquaint yourself with a bit more about the tale. It's a well-known fact that the 9-11 report omitted, at Bush administration insistence, a rather lengthy chapter about the Saudi connection to these events, and the Obama administration has not seen fit to make that public to this day. Wouldn't you like to know a little more about all that? Of course, all this is complicated by the chaos in Iraq and Syria, which has promoted the advancement of ISIS, which sees itself as the legitimate rulers of Islam and challengers to the Saudi family's control of the holy cities of Mecca and Medina. And no, we don't know how much of the blowback of ISIS can be attributed to the extremism promoted by Saudi money. We just don't know enough about it. If you know something about this, feel free to drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. We could, we could use some expertise in this area, although I know this is fiendishly complicated. I know this is way too much to ask for help on, but um, I'm going to take a little detour into a piece which apparently I set aside in 2003 related to Saudi politics, 9-11, and some of the skullduggery on the world political scene. I set this piece aside because I knew that it had some interesting, accurate information in it, but yet it had to be skillful propaganda. How do I know this? Well, because the piece in Time Magazine from September 8th of 2003 by Johanna McCurry is related to a book by Gerald Posner. Mr. Posner is the man who took a look at Joseph Mengele winding up in South America in the wake of World War II and managed to find no links to the CIA in any of these Nazis turning up in South America. He then wrote a book about the JFK assassination that assured the public that there was nothing to any of this conspiracy nonsense. A book thoroughly denounced by no less than Vincent Bugliosi, a frequent Radio Parallax guest, well, at least we had him on twice anyway, who wrote what must surely be the longest defense of the Warren Commission report ever written. Bugliosi thought Posner was full of it. And we here at Radio Parallax know, through connections with others, that Posner lied on several occasions in his magnum opus on the JFK assassination. So we know with his history of mendacity, that this piece in time has to be a bit of a ringer. And yet, one point of the article by Joanna McGeary is completely in sync with what Greg Pallast talked with us about on this program years ago, which is that there were three suspicious Saudi princes who met unusual demises shortly after 9-11. Now, we need to note that Posner's book, which was titled Why America Slept, makes some startling and interesting claims, most of which we suspect are dead on. They are, however, based on supposed interrogations, including multiple waterboardings, with Abu Zabaydah. When he was captured in Pakistan back in 2003, the Bush administration claimed they had nailed one of the big fish in Al-Qaeda. According to the story that Posner is spinning, when Abu Zabaydah was captured by the U.S. and they pretended that he was being taken to Saudi Arabia... For nasty interrogation, he apparently, supposedly, reacted not with fear, but with utter relief. He supposedly told his interrogators that if they would make a telephone call to senior members of the Saudi royal family, they would tell them what to do. 
The man at the other end would be Prince Ahmed bin Salman bin Abdul Aziz, a westernized nephew of King Fahd, and uh, a publisher better known as a racehorse owner. In case you're keeping score, his horse war emblem won the Kentucky Derby back in 2002. And according to Posner, Zabaida told his interrogators in a 10-minute monologue about all of this Saudi bin Laden Pakistani triangle connection. Zabaida claimed he had meetings with Prince Turkey, former longtime Saudi chief of intelligence. I'm not sure what to make out of uh, these claims since they come from Gerald Posner, a known loaded source, but we do know that the three princes that he named as being connected to this uh, 9-11 plot and bin Laden did meet unusual demises within a few days of one another. June 22, 2002, Prince Ahmed was felled by a heart attack, age 43. One day later, Prince Sultan bin Faisal al-Turki, 41, was killed in what was called a high-speed car accident. My favorite's the last member of the trio, Prince Fahd bin Turki bin Saud al-Kabir. He officially died of thirst while traveling east of Riyadh a week later. That's what I like best. Without charging any skullduggery, Gerald Posner told Time Magazine, these may in fact be coincidences. The punchline of the piece is that uh, it closes off by noting, back in 2003, for those who still wonder how these 9-11 attacks happened, Posner's book provides a tidy set of answers. But it opens up more troubling questions about crucial U.S. allies that someone will now have to address. Yeah, well, good luck with that. Twelve years have gone by and no one seems to want to address it. But I was really intrigued when I looked up the follow-up here on Abu Zabaida. Just going to Wikipedia and see what it had to say. If you do this, you will find some fairly credible evidence that this story concocted about him being a high-level operative in Al-Qaeda, well, it's, um, it's subject to some question, let's put it that way. So who's spinning who here and for what purpose? Hell, I don't know. If I was expected to come up with a tidy answer before we close this segment, I certainly wouldn't have gotten involved in this. But you know what? Life isn't like that all the time. We're going to let this one hang and see if we can follow up on it in the next week or two. I'm going to ask some of my people what they know about it. And by all means, dear listener, if you have some insights into this, don't be shy about sharing them with us by, again, dropping us a line at info at radioparallax.com. I find it to be an interesting aspect of trying to produce a show that's sorting through facts like this and coming up at least some answers that you have to know your sources. If you know for a fact that a source is polluted, as is the case with Gerald Posner, you have to regard the information coming from him as polluted. It may also be deadly accurate up to a point. In this fun, anyway, we desperately need to take a short break, so we must do so. This is Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. We're going to get off the subject of Saudi Arabia and 9-11 in our third segment and talk about lighter fare. I think that's a good plan. We can't go on together with suspicious Shining your 